We get it. You're busy. You don't have time to waste on the mainstream media. That's why Salem News Channel is here. We have hosts worth watching, actually discussing the topics that matter. Andrew Wilkow, Dinesh D'Souza, Brandon Tatum, and more. Open debate and free speech you won't find anywhere else. We're not like the other guys. We're Salem News Channel. Watch anytime on any screen for free 24-7 at snc.tv. And on Local Now, Channel 525. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing. Clark Hilton is engineering this afternoon. Today we'll talk with Jen Pollock. I'm not sure if it's Michael or Michelle. I think it's Michelle. Anyway, she's the author of Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of And in an Either-Or World. She'll join us later this hour. First, taking a look at some of the headlines. Alabama State Senate passed a controversial bill on Tuesday that would, allow, that would outlaw rather nearly all abortions in the state and make performing one a felony unless the mother's health is at risk. By the way, the governor has now signed that bill. More on that in a few moments. The bill will make the punishment for performing abortions up to 99 years or life in prison, although the woman who undergoes the procedure would not be subject to a felony charge. Democratic lawmakers pressed for amendments that would create exceptions for instances of rape and incest, but failed. The vote... Um, uh, is expected to, and in the case of some lawmakers there, was intended to reignite the debate over Roe versus Wade, the 1973 Supreme Court decision that legalized abortion across the nation and pushed Supreme Court justices to reevaluate the laws. Meanwhile, the government report being released uh, today says the nation's birth rates for women in their teens and 20s reached record low last year, leading to the fewest babies in 32 years. We're going to talk about the implications for Social Security and Medicare a bit later in the program as well. President Trump's legal team slammed House Democrats on Tuesday evening after a report that the House Intelligence Committee has been investigating possible obstruction by Trump's lawyers after the 2016 election. Instead of addressing important intelligence needs, the House Intelligence Committee appears to seek a truly needless dispute. That's a quote from Patrick Strawbridge, who represents Attorney Jay Sekulow. The statement came in response to a New York Times article published yesterday that said the committee, led by Representative Alan, um, or rather Adam Schiff of California, is investigating whether lawyers tied to President Trump and his family helped obstruct the panel's inquiry into Russian election interference by shaping false testimony. So apparently the Mueller report is no longer relevant. And with Joe Biden surging a double-digit lead in the polls as the frontrunner to face President Trump in 2020, some Democratic candidates are already reinventing their strategies and reintroducing themselves to the media. Representative uh, Tusley Gabbard, or Tuesley Gabbard uh, from Hawaii generated buzz by slamming former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper and mocking the Clintons during her appearance on Monday on the podcast The Joe Rogan Experience, once leading contenders like Beto O'Rourke and Senator Kamala Harris whose uh, momentum was sapped by South Bend, Indiana Mayor Pete Buttigieg, and then by Biden, have conducted a a string of new interviews and planned town hall events over the next few weeks. In fact, Beto O'Rourke live-streamed his own haircut and massage, and this came a day after lamenting uh, the image of, uh, of privilege 
So I'm not sure what he is thinking. Harris was interviewed by CNN's Jake Tapper last weekend. will appear on MSNBC on the 28th of this month. O'Rourke has been interviewed by Rachel Maddow and on The View this week and will be featured in a CNN town hall on the 21st. Buttigieg will be on Fox News town hall next Sunday. Still, the media buzz host Howard Kurtz noted in his column, uh, when you're uh, relaunching, you're losing. Representative Ilhan Omar, the Democrat from Minnesota, defended her colleague, Representative Rashida Tlaib uh, from Michigan, for, from criticism over controversial remarks about the Holocaust, insisting that the backlash is designed to silence Muslim voices. Well, no, it's actually just to respond to specific things she actually said. But appearing on MSNBC, Omar said that she and Tlaib, whom she referred to as my sister, have the strength to endure any of the mischaracterization or efforts to distort and vilify the mis- uh, and mischaracterize their message. And what could have happened is Ms. Tlaib, who was misunderstood broadly to simply clarify her comments rather than double down on them in order to make uh, her intended meaning known, but that's not how things are done these days. She went on to say, I think we are seeing what happens when people really see these kinds of attacks for what they are. It is designed to silence, sideline, sort of almost eliminate the public voice of Muslims from the public discourse. Now, last I checked, there was one woman who happened to be a member of Congress, uh, Congress who made the statement it wasn't the Muslim world. So um, objecting to what uh, Ms. Omar had to say is quite different than silencing Muslims. But the New Orleans Pelican won the NBA draft lottery Tuesday night, and with it, the likely right to select Duke superstar Zion Williamson in next month's NBA draft. We need to finish this season first, but the Memphis Grizzlies received the second overall pick, followed by the New York Knicks and Los Angeles Lakers. Memphis Grizzlies. Huh. Anyway, uh, the Cleveland Cavaliers received the fifth overall pick, despite having the joint highest odds to win the lottery at 14 percent, alongside the Knicks and Phoenix Suns. The Suns received the sixth overall pick the last time New Orleans won the lottery in 2012. They selected Kentucky center Anthony Davis with a first overall pick. Well, Donald Trump Jr. agreed on Tuesday to comply with the Republican Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr's subpoena-backed demand that he sit for a private interview with the members of the panel. Trump Jr. has reportedly agreed to speak to lawmakers about a limited range from about two to four hours, um, a limited range of topics um, sometime in mid-June. And more than 20 House Democrats will stage a marathon public reading of the entire redacted Mueller report beginning Thursday at noon and likely ending in the early morning hours of Friday. Now, anyone can access the report. I'm not sure why reading it aloud is of value, but it will uh, begin Thursday at noon, likely ending in the early morning hours on Friday. And Christopher Steele, a former British intelligence officer, produced a 35-page dossier for the Democratic Party and Hillary Clinton campaign that contained at least 12 charges of Trump-Russia conspiracies. Review by The Washington Times, comparing the dossier with the special counsel Robert Mueller's report, found none was substantiated and most were debunked. And, of course, there's an investigation into how this all started that has now begun. And Washington ordered the departure of non-emergency government employees from Iraq today after repeated U.S. expressions of concern about threats from Iran-backed forces. 
And America's baby bust isn't over. The nation's birth rates last year reached record lows for women in their teens and 20s. A government report shows leading to the fewest babies in 32 years. And America's 10 largest cities, largely Democrat strongholds, are drowning in municipal debt, according to a new report from government watchdog Truth in Accounting. The two cities with the highest burden, Chicago and New York City, Chicago's combined taxpayer burden, 119 thousand one hundred and ten dollars new york city's uh, combined taxpayer burden eighty five thousand six hundred and that's per citizen and on this day of 2014 president barack obama uh, just dedicated the national september 11th memorial museum deep beneath ground zero calling it a symbol that says of america nothing can ever break us And on this day in 1862, President Abraham Lincoln signed an act establishing the Department of Agriculture. On this day in 1991, President George Herbert Walker Bush takes Queen Elizabeth to a major league baseball game between the Baltimore Orioles and Oakland athletes, or athletics. And on this day in 2008, California's Supreme Court declares same-sex couples in the state can marry, a decision that would be overturned the following November by the passage of Proposition 8 which would itself ultimately be struck down by the courts. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Zero Res. Later this hour, we'll talk with Jen Pollock-Michelle, author of Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of And in an Either-Or World. Well, Republican Governor Kay Ivey signed the controversial Alabama abortion bill into law today. The law will make nearly all abortions in that state illegal, make performing one a felony punishable by up to 99 years to life in prison unless the mother's health is at risk, with no exceptions for women's uh, uh, the circumstances of their impregnation, uh, rape or incest. The American Civil Liberties Union vowed to sue after the state Senate to approve the uh, measure Tuesday night. But that is precisely what some lawmakers are hoping for. Well, this legislation stands as a powerful testament to Alabamians' uh, deeply held belief that every life is precious and that every life is a sacred gift from God, Ivy said in uh, in a statement. That's the governor, Kay Ivey. Republican State Representative Terry Collins, who sponsored the bill, aimed to reignite the debate surrounding Roe v.ersus Wade, that 1973 Supreme Court decision legalizing abortion across the nation, and to push justices to overturn that landmark ruling. Currently, the law will not be enforceable because of the current Supreme Court ruling that makes abortions a constitutional right. I've acknowledged this upon signing the bill. In all meaningful respects, this bill closely resembles an abortion ban that has been a part of Alabama law for well over 100 years. As today's bill itself recognizes, that long-standing abortion law has been rendered unforeseeable as a result of the U.S. Supreme Court decision Roe versus Wade. No matter one's personal view on abortion, we can all recognize that, at least for the short term, this bill may similarly be unforeseeable, or rather unenforceable. As uh, citizens of this great uh, country, we must always respect the authority of the U.S. Supreme Court, even when we disagree with their decisions. Many Americans, myself included, disagreed with Roe versus Wade when it was handed down in 1973. The sponsors of this bill believe that it is time once again for the U.S. Supreme Court to revisit this important matter, and they believe this act may bring about the best opportunity for this to occur. So there's an understanding that given the uh, ruling made in 1973, it will be challenged, and the hope is the Supreme Court will revisit the fundamental issues of Roe v. Wade and the companion piece, Doe v. 
Bolton. So we will watch with interest what happens next. Now, it's possible that the lower courts would rule in such a way that it will never reach the Supreme Court. But that is at least in part uh, the reasoning behind this effort. Well, the White House announced that they're set to unveil a sweeping new plan that would radically transform the makeup of immigrants in the United States, ending the visa lottery program and implementing a comprehensive merit-based admissions procedure, three senior administration officials uh, have said. The move would more than quadruple the number of immigrants admitted because of their work-related skills while dramatically slashing the number of immigrants admitted because of family ties. Currently, approximately 12 percent of immigrants are admitted based on employment and skills, while 66 percent are admitted based on family connections. Those percentages under the new plan would shift to 57 percent and 33 percent, respectively. Ten percent of immigrants would be admitted on humanitarian or other grounds, but the plan would end the visa lottery program. In its place, a new Build America visa program would recognize extraordinarily talented Um, rather extraordinary talent and people with professional and specialized vocations, including exceptional students. Potential um, immigrants would be assessed using a point-based system accounting for factors including age, English proficiency, whether each candidate has an offer of employment above a certain wage threshold, and educational and vocational certifications. uh, Pledges to invest and create jobs also would be considered. Well, the average yearly wage of immigrant families currently is approximately $43,000. The officials said immigrants admitted based on education and skills would have an average family income of $126,000. And they would expect the average yearly wage of all immigrant families to rise to roughly $96,000 under this new configuration. Well, the Trump administration also said it's considered uh, other similar immigration systems. When Canada, for example, implemented a merit-based system, it largely resulted in a pooling of immigrants from East Asia and the Indian subcontinent. To avoid um, pooling, the White House rather said it would add points to immigrant candidates from underrepresented countries, but it would not impose caps on certain other countries. President Trump is set to deliver a major immigration address on Thursday afternoon. Uh, Amid um, previous reports that the president's son-in-law and senior advisor, Jared Kushner, had been working to finalize a plan that focuses on border security and changes um, to the legal immigration system. Uh, Kushner uh, presented the plan to senators on Capitol Hill on Tuesday. So this uh, plan, again, will be discussed in a press event that's coming up Thursday afternoon, Eastern Time. Former U.S. Vice President Joe Biden has expanded his lead over a wide field of candidates, now 22, for the 2020 Democratic presidential nomination by five percentage points since he entered the race in late April, according to a monthly Reuters Ipsos poll. The poll released on Wednesday found 29 percent of Democrats and independents said they would vote for Biden in the state nominating contests that begin next year. That's up from 24 percent who said Uh, So in a poll that ran in late April, days before Biden announced his bid, so from 24 to 29 percent, Biden led the field among all major demographic groups except millennials ages 18 to 37, who favored U.S. Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont over Biden, 18 percent to 16 percent. Biden 
is 76. He remains the strongest and in the strongest position for the top of the ticket, despite questions about his age and centrist positions. He also has faced criticism over his unwanted touching of women and his treatment of law professor Anita Hill three decades ago during Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas confirmation hearing. The monthly survey showed 29 percent of women who identify as Democrats and independents said they backed Biden up four points from last month. And among registered Democrats, those who supported other candidates still listed Biden as a top alternative if their choice dropped out of the race, according to that very same poll. That means that there is not a significant anti-Biden block of voters split between the other candidates. Chris Jackson, a polling expert from Ipsos, points out at this moment, Joe Biden is a clear front runner in the Democratic primary. The Democratic nominee will likely face Republican President Donald Trump in November of 2020 in the election. Besides Biden, 13 percent of Democrats and independents said that they would vote for Sanders, Bernie Sanders. None of the other candidates received more than 6 percent support in that poll. With more than a month until the candidates square off in the first televised debates and 18 months before the 2020 presidential election, the American public appears to be selecting candidates they know best. Fewer than 20 percent of Democrats said that they were familiar with many of the candidates, including U.S. Representative Tusley Gabbard of uh, Hawaii. I pronounce her name different every time I say it. Uh, from uh, former Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper, Montana Governor Steve Bullock, Washington Governor Jay Inslee, and Wayne's, uh, Wayne Messam, mayor of um, Florida, or a mayor from Florida. In comparison, more than 84% said they were familiar with Biden and Sanders. However, Biden probably is not leading on name recognition alone. A political analyst from the University of Virginia Center for Politics points out it's not valuable if people know you but don't like you. Uh, we saw that for Florida Governor Jeb Bush in 2015. He had good name ID. Everyone knew his family name, but he wasn't polling as well as Biden is now because Republicans didn't like him. So the season has officially be well, rather unofficially begun, but the official start uh, will be upon us in about a month with the first Democrat uh, candidate debates. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we're going to talk about the book Surprised by Paradox, the promise of and and either or in an either or world. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back 35 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, in a world that's filled with ambiguity, many of us long for a belief system that provides straightforward answers to complex questions and clarity in the face of confusion. We want faith to act like an orderly set of truth claims designed to solve the problem and, and pain that life often throws us. Well, with her signature candor and depth, my next guest, Jen Pollock-Michelle, helps readers imagine a Christian faith open to mystery. And while there are certainties in Christian faith, at the heart of the Christian story is also paradox. Jesus invites us to abandon the polarities of either and or in order to embrace the difficult, wondrous dissonance of and. And that's what her book is all about. The incarnation, the paradox of God made human, teaches us to look for God in uh, the and of body and spirit, heaven and earth, in the kingdom of God. Often uh, God hides a, uh, uh, in plain sight and announces his triumph on the back of a donkey in a, the paradox of grace. And she goes on from there. Well, it's a, a great book. Uh, she writes, as soon as we think we have God figured out, <laughs> 
uh, we will have ceased to worship him as he is. Well, with personal stories, reflection on scripture, literature, and culture, she uh, takes us deeper into mystery and into worship of the one who is a mystery uh, and love. Well, my next guest is... um, a beautiful writer, Jen Pollock Michelle. She is the author of Teach Us to Want and Keeping Place, which each have a video curriculum available through Right Now Media. She's a regular contributor for Christianity Today and Moody Bible Institute's Today in the World. And she earned her BA in French from Wheaton College and her MA in Literature from Northwestern University. She is a wife and mother of five. She lives in Toronto, Canada, and we are just delighted to have you with us here today. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Georgine. Well, again, the title of the book is Surprised by Paradox, and I think that's a good place to start. How has paradox not only surprised and startled you, but led you to write about it, not only in this book, but you touch on it in the two previous books as well? Yeah, it's funny because I think I was even surprised that I was writing about paradox. (laughs) I sort of went into the book, um, you know, kind of intrigued by the things that the places I would say that God asks us to hold things in tension. So an example of that, you know, that I've long felt in my life, and I talk about this in my previous two books, is just the tension of living a spiritual life and an earthly life at the same time, you know. And so when you we think about the Apostle Paul telling us to remember that um, to set our minds, for example, on things above in Colossians 3, You know, part of me, I think as a younger Christian, I thought, well, that should probably mean I should never think about anything earthly, you know, that paying your bills and vacuuming your floor and, you know, these are all sort of secondary things, you know, and the best thing we can be doing is reading our Bible. And I was actually kind of laughing because I was just chatting with my children about, I don't know, we were talking about Jesus coming back. And I said, what do you want Jesus to find you doing when you come, when he comes back? And my younger son, my 11 year old said, reading my Bible. And I said, Oh, that's a perfect answer. You know, that's probably what I would have said. You know, and of course, that's a wonderful thing to do. But man, if Jesus comes back, and I'm mowing my lawn, like that might be as delightful to him as reading my Bible. Mm -hmm. And so being surprised by paradox, just entering into those places where we hold things in tension, we where there's, there feels to be a little bit of a rub, you know, a spiritual life and an earthly life, grace, the rub of, you know, resting in what God's done for us and also responding to his, his work in our lives and participating with him and, re- and responding spiritually um, to him. The, the rub of lament that we can grieve things that really hurt and at the same time hold out hope. So these are some of the places that I that I explore in the book. Yeah, yeah. I love that in the introduction, I think it was in the um, introduction, you compare this paradox that we live, for those of us who are married, with marriage and the decisions we make in order that, that love will prevail and we will remain together. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I think that might help us understand how we do live with um um, and and either or in life yes. in ways that we may not think as deeply about. Yes, I think marriage is a really great example. Mm-hmm. I've been married for 20-some years. I'm like, how long have I been married? Oh, not quite 25, 23 years. And, um, you know, this little word, and, you know, it, it's this place, this word that reminds us of the things that we have to hold into tension. And so when we think about marriage, 
part of what we do in marriage, right? Every day is we lay down our lives. We serve the person that we're married to. You know, they come home from work tired and we're tired too, but you know, we choose to lay down our life and do the dishes and, you know, whatever, give them a break. Um, but that's not the only thing we do, right? Um, we also kind of take up the responsibility of, of working toward a better marriage. And sometimes that means saying hard words and reflecting back, hey, you know, I think we could really grow in this area and I, I need this from you. So it's not just all, it's always giving, of course, but sometimes there's, there's even a receiving in marriage that blesses the other person. And so I feel like marriage is a, is a lot of paradox every day. It's, it's not either I serve or I get for myself. It's just this dance of the and, you know, that I'm serving my husband and I'm also receiving his service from me, that I'm believing the best in our marriage. Some days that, you know, I'm, I'm always picking up a love. Um, that, but, and sometimes that love covers over a multitude of sins. It's a, it's a day that I just think, you know what, that's a small thing. I'm not even going to mention it. We're not even going to, we don't even need to worry about that. Um, and some days love asks me to take up that hard conversation Mm -hmm. and say, um, let's grow. I don't, you know, that hurts when you say things like that, or maybe, or I, I just could, I could, I need this from you so that we can grow. And so I think marriage, is a paradox. It's the yeah. both and every day. You also write that there is virtue in the little word and a humility that it can form in us and uh, and rather helped the early church learn to love each other well. It wasn't easy when the contradictions of Jew and Gentile were joined together in the holy matrimony of Christ's body. God was reconciling tremendous difference for the sake of unity in his new kingdom of priests. How were these people to eat dinner together, much less share a common faith? And you go on from there. Again, pointing out that this is so common in Scripture that if we find ourselves discouraged or questioning whether or not we uh, really are a, a faithful Christian because we do uh, we are puzzled by some things that we find there, that this is just a natural part of being a follower of Christ. Yes, I think the Apostle Paul is taking the, you know, these the, the new church, the New Testament church, um, right into these places of tension, you know, Jew and Gentile together, you know, and like, what do we eat? Do we eat, you know, food sacrificed to idols? And, and Paul takes up a very paradoxical question, you know, answer to that. He doesn't, he really doesn't rely on an either or an or answer. He says, hey, you know what, we're free to eat anything, but guess what? You're bound to love your neighbor. And if, if you, your eating causes your neighbor to sin, then you're sinning against your neighbor. And, and, and so there, it's just not a formula, right? Paul doesn't say, listen, do A, then do B, and then do C. He gives us, um, he commands um, the New Testament church to love each other, to exercise their freedom, but always in the context of love. And I think that really requires them to, A, you know, enter into conversation with each other, exercise the humility that's required for conversation, the dependence that's required for conversation with God and praying to God and asking for his wisdom. So these places, like where we kind of feel puzzled, where we feel tension, um, where we we just don't have easy answers. We sometimes want to run away from them, but those are the places where we grow, where we um, have to rely upon God's wisdom, not our own, because we don't have answers that just fit nice and easy and tidy. 
Yeah, I love that you write this as well. In this book, I'm inviting readers to imagine the possibilities of and. I am not, however, dismissing that either and or are God's words, too. A philosopher, Mm -hmm. Isaiah Berlin, uh, has uh, written, I am not a relativist. I do not say I like my coffee with milk and you like it without. I am in favor of kindness and you prefer concentration camps. Scripture's revelation is often less murky than we wish, especially for deciding many contemporary ethical issues at the center of fierce public debate. However, much of our much to our chagrin, God is not afraid to pronounce thou shalt and thou shalt not. So mm. I appreciate your balancing that out that we can't apply this this and either or in some areas where God clearly speaks, but there are so many areas in which that is in fact the case. And it's not just mm-hmm. a, a, there um as a challenge, but it's there for our good as well. Mhm. Yes. Absolutely. I think people sometimes get nervous, and rightfully so, when Christians start talking about mystery. And, you know, we have an example of that, actually, like in the New York Times, um, just this past Easter, there was a president of a seminary, a very um, liberal, progressive seminary, who essentially denied the resurrection of Christ, among other essential Christian doctrines. And so I think that's something, you know, there's not, and she would essentially have said, God is mystery. We can't know him. Well, no, there's lots that God has revealed to us. God has revealed himself in Jesus. God, we know that Jesus died for our sins and rose from the dead and that he's returning. Um, these are things we can be confident about. So I think there are a lot of things that aren't as mysterious as some people would say. But sometimes in our faith, we have to admit that some things are. And when they are mysterious, we don't have to run away from it. We can embrace that, embrace the sense of God being his ways, not being our ways, his um, thoughts, not being our thoughts, his wisdom being higher than ours. Absolutely. Now, we need to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, we're talking with Jen Pollock-Michelle. She writes beautifully, and this latest book is titled Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of And in an Either-Or World. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 52 minutes after four o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Jen Pollock-Michelle. She's the author of Surprised by Paradox. She's the author of two other books, Teach Us to Want and Keeping Pace, which each have uh, video curriculum available through Right Now Media. She's a regular contributor to Christianity Today and Moody Bible Institutes Today in the Word. Uh, this book really takes on a, a challenging subject, but she writes sometimes almost poetic uh, in in terms of how we walk out our faith in light of the paradox that we often are confronted by, but can um, really flourish uh, in. Now, how does Surprise by Paradox draw from your previous books um, that that don't uh, point to it quite as directly, but at least suggest that paradox is a, a, a normal part of the Christian experience? Yes, it's interesting. I really have only seen it in retrospect. Um, I certainly didn't approach my first couple of books thinking, oh, I'm writing about paradox. But if paradox is the way that we talk about things that seem contradictory or things that really are the both and, you know, the first book, Teach Us to Want, is about the paradox of desire in the life of faith, that it's both a caution. We have to be cautious about our desires. We know what's 
true about us as sinners and mm-hmm. our hearts are deceitful, but that we also have to embrace a call to desire because on this side of the resurrection, you know, being united with Christ, we're raised to walk in newness of life. And I think that's newness of desire as much as it is newness of belief and behavior. So teach us to want is the paradox of desire and keeping place is really the paradox of home. Um, the both and of home that both we in one sense are exiles in this world, you know, and mm-hmm. the new Testament writers talk a lot about that, that our citizenship is in heaven. Um, but there, and so we have a home that's coming and we have a home that's not yet. Um, but I think at the same time, there's a, there's a, a lot of, emphasis in the New Testament about just being faithful where you are, you know, that God has um, determined the boundaries of our lives and where we live. And um, these things matter to God that we look when we look at the garden, God actually gave Adam and Eve a home. He made it, he made them a garden home. And when we look to the end of the um, biblical story, you know, God is making a new city for his people. So home, this longing that we have even though we can't realize it fully now, that doesn't mean that we should, you know, disregard where we live. No, God's asking us to be faithful where we live and to love our neighbors and to love our places and to be good citizens, recognizing, of course, that we're exiles. So there's, there's a both and really to that. Um, so I, as I say, it, you know, it's really writing a surprise with paradox. I sort of look back and think, oh, I guess those books really were about paradox. I just didn't really realize it at the time. But that's, I guess, to say we don't often think about paradox in yeah. our lives of faith. Yeah, it's inescapable, but we don't necessarily recognize it when we are confronted mm-hmm. by it. What role should surprise play in our lives with God? Because uh, we so often want certainty and predictability, but surprise is a part of the Christian walk as well. I think surprise is one of the most beautiful things about faith. In fact, the more that I read scripture, the more surprise that I have. And I think that just is, is exactly as God really wants it. I think that that's the beauty of reading scripture. It's, it's living, it's active. You know, God isn't, he just isn't always fulfilling our expectations or meeting our expectations or doing things as we would, as we would think that he should do them. And we could look at a person like Abraham and think about all the surprise that he had. I mean, the surprise of, um, you know, hearing the voice of God at 75 and telling him to move. And then, you know, the surprise of being given this promise of a son. And then the surprise of 25 years of waiting. And the surprise that the, that the son wasn't going to be Ishmael, that it was going to be Isaac. And, I mean, just surprise after surprise after surprise. Um, and I really think just, just allowing ourselves to expect surprise in our life with God kind of keeps us open, mm-hmm. reminds us that, um, you know what, God's going to do things in my life that I probably don't expect, yeah. um, but, and it's probably not going to you know, fulfill all of my expectations, so it's going to be way better. <laughs> it's going to be way better than I could ask or imagine. I mean, I think about the surprise of just moving to Canada eight years ago. Um, we thought we were coming here two or three years for my husband's job, and eight years later, we're still here. And how many of our life, sto- like life stories follow that trajectory of surprise? I really think most of us would say, we didn't, you know, graduate from university, for example, and kind of plot out the next 
you know, 30, 40, 50 years and, and didn't have the, you know, and our life didn't follow that plan. No, we've, we've met a lot of surprise along the way. And I think God's in that surprise. Yeah, absolutely. Now you touched on the subjects that you highlight in the book uh, in, in separate parts, four separate parts, the incarnation, uh, the kingdom, grace, and lament. These are four areas where we find um, a paradox. And at the end of each of the sections, and you have chapters in, under each heading, there are questions for reflection and discussion. How do you want your readers to approach each of these subjects, not just to have a better understanding of what it means to live uh, in the surprise of paradox, but um, but also how we are to respond and rejoice in those elements that uh, introduce um, uncertainty and reliance on God? Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the things that's a real challenge in our culture right now is to to just really to actually practice reflection. It's really easy to read things, kind of like skim through things. I mean, the internet's changing the way we read. We know mm-hmm. that from research. So I'd love I'd love for people to just take up those questions and maybe it's reflecting on them um, just personally and and really just sort of sitting with some of the ideas and not rushing through things. It's one of those books that you could probably read quickly because the chapters are short, but you could also, you know, really kind of take your time through it. And maybe you sit with, um, you know, just a journal and you, you reflect on those questions and maybe you, I think better yet, you get together with a friend um, because that for me is one just really key way that I, I learn and that I grow spiritually is just in community is when I hear other people sharing their life stories, sharing how God's been faithful to them, sharing maybe their surprises, their questions. Um, so I'd like for it to be a book that people don't totally hurry through. In fact, one of the things I talk about in the book is that I'd like for them, I'd like for readers to be like Moses. Moses at the burning bush, he, he actually encountered a paradox. He faced the bush that burned and was not consumed. Like, this did not make sense. This both and, the bush that's burning and is not being consumed. And, and what does Moses say? He says, I will turn aside and see this great sight, why this bush is not burned. And that's not, like, we could just sort of fly past that sentence in Scripture. But for me, I'm like, wow. The decision to turn aside in a distracted kind of superficial culture where, you know, goodness, with my phone, I could just, I could easily entertain myself and distract myself all day long. But to turn aside, to pay attention to things in our lives of faith or to the nature of God, to, um, you know, the nature of grace and these themes that I'm teasing out in scripture, just that turning aside, slowing down, pausing, paying attention, talking about it with with a friend, um, I think is, I hope, will be a valuable exercise. Yeah, yeah. Well, once again, the title of the book, Surprised by Paradox, The Promise of And in an Either-Or World. Beautifully written. Jen Pollock, Michelle, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. Oh, thanks so much for having me, Georgina. Really appreciate fun. it. We've got news and traffic coming at the top of the hour. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Seven minutes after five o'clock is our time. Well, a new Zogby poll of 852 likely voters nationwide in the U.S. Now, keep in mind, 852 voters. That, you know, there are millions of us. But nonetheless, the... Um, 
poll was conducted from the 2nd of this month to the 9th or through the 9th with a margin of sampling error of about uh, plus or minus 3.4 percentage points. But it shows President Trump's job approval rating at its best since we've um, they've been tracking the figure, as they write. Currently, he stands at 51 percent approval, 48 percent disapproved, 2 percent are not sure. The president's job approval rating has been a, a, a uh, seen a post Mueller report boost. Um, uh, it was called a few weeks ago, but that's not the complete story as to why the president has reached a peak in his job approval rating. They are writing. Trump is also writing high on uh, positive economic news, a record high stock market, low unemployment, solid GDP growth at home. At the moment, the president's uh, approval rating is higher than former President Barack Obama's at the same point in his presidency, according to Zogby Analytics. They had President Obama at 48 percent approval rating, uh, 52 percent uh, disapproval rating uh, as of 5, 9, 20, or excuse me, 11. Now, what does that mean in terms of the 2020 election? Pretty much nothing. It gives you a snapshot of this moment in time, which could change at any point with the tariffs, for example, or with a conflict with Iran. But at this moment in time, this is what Zogby um, and others are saying in terms of his uh, approval and disapproval rating. Also, more women donated to President Donald Trump's reelection campaign than any of the Democratic uh, 2020 presidential candidates thus far, according to the FEC data. 10,375 women donated to uh, Trump in the first quarter of 2019, more than double the nearest Democratic uh, challenger. California Senator Kamala Harris had the second highest number of female donors at 3,850. Trump's average donation per woman donor is also much lower than his uh, top female opponents. New York Senator Kirsten Gillibrand average donation $1,321. Senator Harris's average was 935 per donor, women, uh, respectively, while the Trump's uh, Trump donors uh, averaged out at about 141. The data compiled by the Center for Responsive Politics uses publicly available contribution information from the Federal Elections Commission. Individual donors are only itemized with the um, F- FEC once they reach at least $200 in donations to a particular candidate. So if there were donors under that threshold, it could be that there are far more women uh, giving far less. So gives you some uh, uh, some perspective. Uh, President Trump at the top, Kamala Harris uh, following uh, Bernie Sanders at 3,271, uh, Beto O'Rourke at 2,200, Cory Booker at 20, or rather 2,000, uh, Pete Buttigieg at 1,300 women, Elizabeth Warren 1,300, Amy Klobuchar at 1,300, Andrew Yang 964, Gillibrand at 960, um, Julian Castro at 563, and, and so on, and it goes on um, from there. And again, a snapshot at this particular filing that may change over time, but it gives us uh, just a snapshot of what's happening at this moment. Well, just when you think you've seen or heard everything possible from uh, from California, there's another surprise coming out of Sacramento. This one not only displays unprecedented overreach, but also an absolute disregard for the U.S. Constitution. Now, that's not all that uncommon in this great republic. But nonetheless, the California State Senate approved a bill earlier this month to require candidates appearing on the 2020 presidential primary ballot, including President Donald Trump, to release five years worth of income tax returns. So now your ability to appear in the Cal- on the California ballot is linked to your tax returns. While well, a timely and conveniently biased bill, which if it becomes law, means that Trump's name may not appear on the California primary ballot, 
not that he was going to win in that state during the upcoming presidential election cycle, and an especially egregious bill since the United States Constitution clearly states that there are only three requirements for holding the presidency. Article 2, Section 1, Clause 5 of the Constitution says, To serve as president, one must be a natural-born U.S. citizen of the United States, be at least 35 years old, be a resident of the United States for at least 14 years. Uh, These requirements have been in place since, well, George Washington became president. But all of a sudden, a small group of legislators in the Golden State have found a way to try to thwart the democratic process for voters in their state to ensure their team wins. Um, And it may sound favorable if you dislike Donald Trump. Not having his name on the ballot might sound like a wonderful thing until the tables turn at some point in the future and your guy, your gal, their name is uh, not on the ballot and they're deprived of the opportunity to one in a lawful race. Um, Although presidential candidates traditionally release their tax returns, President Trump has not done so, stating he is uh, currently under audit. Tradition, however, is far different than a constitutional requirement. And if California, or for that matter, any other state starts this uh, to add non-constitutional requirements for office holders, there's no telling where that might end or if it will end ever. Could they require a candidate, for example, to be of a certain gender or race or sexual orientation or even size or shape or set of arbitrary limits on a candidate's age? Sounds pretty discriminatory or preposterous. Well, not exactly. In fact, the state legislature passed a similar bill in 2017 But then Governor Jerry Brown, a Democrat who did not release his own tax returns, vetoed the bill. I tell you, that California keeps you on your toes. House Democrats are heading into a world of hurt. Well, that's what uh, one lawyer says, issuing a warning to Congress on the uh, uh, bar contempt. Uh, You are heading into a world of hurt, is what he says. If you escalate the fight with Attorney General Bill Barr over access to the full Robert Mueller report, according to a constitutional law expert, Jonathan Turley. Turley, a George Washington University law professor, issued the warning during testimony before the House Judiciary Committee today. Well, as lawmakers grilled him and other legal scholars on issues having to do with executive privilege and congressional oversight, Turley stated that while he generally tends to give weight to congressional power, they are sure to lose if they go to court for the purpose of holding Barr in contempt for not releasing the full Mueller report, which law precludes him from doing. You are heading into a world of hurt, he says. Well, House Democrats recently voted at the uh, committee level to hold Barr in contempt for refusing to release a fully redacted version of the Mueller report and underlying materials. Turley pointed out, as uh, Barr has in the past, that the federal rules of criminal procedure do not allow Barr to disclose the secret grand jury information that was redacted in the previously released version. Now, one other interesting element to this is that it was very lightly redacted. It certainly could have been much, uh, much worse. And I don't remember now what the percentage was. But these members have have declined to go and read it because they want the full report without the redaction. So they don't even know, not having read it, what these redactions, um, how important they might be to fully understanding the uh, the full weight of the report. So that's a little disappointing. Well, the D.C. Circuit recently ruled on this very issue, stating in the case of McKeever versus Barr that outside of the specific exceptions outlined in Rule 6E, courts do not have the authority to order the disclosure of grand jury information, since any legal action taken against Barr for contempt would likely end up before the D.C. Circuit. Turley made it clear that going down that road is a bad idea for Congress. There's no question that he cannot release this Rule 6E information, Turley said, calling Barr's position 
unassailable. Well, the professor said that Congress may have better luck in forcing witnesses to testify and acquiring some of the underlying documents referenced in the Mueller report that he still cautioned Democrats regarding certain matters of executive privilege, which the president has invoked in an attempt to keep the material secret. So we'll see what happens moving forward if the Democrats take that advice, if they send it to the circuit court, only to be told what they've already been told. So we'll let you know. What happens next? You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back 20 minutes after 5 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as I mentioned, some Democratic lawmakers are threatening to handcuff and lock up Attorney General William Barr. Um, by uh, holding him in contempt of Congress. Um, It's rarely more than a censure vote, and it might be useful. It might be instructive to go back to look at what happened to Eric Holder, who was the previous attorney general, who was held in contempt by Republicans. Well, the most relevant comparison, this bipartisan vote, 17 House Democrats joined the Republican uh, majority in 2012 to hold then-Attorney General Eric Holder in criminal contempt of Congress for not providing thousands of pages of documents regarding Operation Fast and Furious, a serious scandal for the Obama administration. Now, it's interesting. I often hear, you know, the Obama administration, we didn't have any scandals. That's one thing that, well, that's not true. The truth is there were several of them, but the media chose not to um, obsess over them as they do with everything today. But nonetheless, 17 Democrats in the House, along with the uh, majority of Republicans. Well, more Democrats, a total of 21, joined Republicans to find Holder in civil contempt. Two Republicans voted against criminal contempt citation. Well, Fast and Furious, which was a Justice Department program, allowed hundreds of American guns to flow to Mexican drug trafficking organizations. The Justice Department, however, lost track of those guns. And in late 2010, one was found at the scene of Border Patrol agent Brian Terry's death. You might recall all of that It was barely mentioned in the the mainstream media. Well, the House at the time was under Republican control and the criminal and civil contempt citations originated in the Oversight and Government Reform Committee under Chairman Daryl Issa. Now, Democrats uh, now control the House and one of Barr's harshest uh, critics is Judiciary Chairman Jerry Nadler. Again, we're making a comparison to the threatened uh, citation of contempt against the attorney general today and that of Eric Holder uh, back in the previous administration. Well, Democratic lawmakers gave Uh, Attorney General Barr, a deadline of Monday to provide completely unredacted copy of special counsel Robert Mueller's report on Russian meddling in the 2016 presidential election, which he is barred by law from doing. Barr responded that he uh, has provided as much of the report as he is allowed to provide by law because it contains grand jury information and material that potentially could jeopardize an ongoing investigation. Well, by contrast, the contempt vote on Holder was legitimate, says Hans Van Uh, Von Spakovsky, a former Justice Department lawyer and co-author with journalist John Fund of the 2014 book Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. Here, he writes, Barr has given Congress complete access to the report except for some parts. Um, uh, Holder refused to provide information on Fast and Furious in any part. He was trying to cover up the most reckless Department of Justice ever, which led to the death of border agent uh, Border Patrol agent. 
Uh, the improper thing in the Barr case is that they want to hold him in contempt for following federal law. Well, Von Spakovsky said he doubts a contempt citation for Barr uh, would have the same bipartisan backing that the Holder citation, citation drew. The unredacted Mueller report already is available in a secure room for members of Congress to view, but not to uh, remove or take notes or photographs. Well, the Daily Signal sought uh, comment from Holder by phone and email at the law firm of uh, Covington and Burling, where he's a partner in the National Democratic Redistricting Commission, where he's chairman. Neither organization had responded as the of um, the publication of Von Spakovsky's uh, report. But after the House voted to find Holder in contempt of Congress, Deputy Attorney General James Cole, Holder's number two, issued a letter to the House stating the department will not bring the congressional contempt citation before a grand jury or try or rather or take any other action to prosecute the attorney general. End quote. Several Democrats uh, indicate it will be different this time and talk about putting bar behind bars inside the Capitol. You have to have him sit for a hearing and you have to have him locked up until he agrees to participate and come to the hearing. Representative Steve Cohen told CNN's Anderson Cooper, it shows we want to hold him in contempt, but the fact is he won't be held in contempt because the Justice Department is not going to enforce a contempt citation against their boss. Didn't happen the last time around. It won't happen this time around, especially because there is no grounds for a contempt citation, but that's Something I've already mentioned. While the move is a partisan attempt to discredit Barr, who intends to investigate whether the FBI acted improperly in moving to surveil a Trump aide during the 2016 campaign. Um, the uh, reason they're doing this is um, this is according to um, uh, let's see, what's his name? Christian Adams, who's a former Justice Department lawyer and author of Injustice, Exposing the Racial Agenda of the Obama Justice Department. He writes, the reason they are doing this threatening contempt is because Barr is turning his attention to the real misconduct that occurred, namely using the U.S. government's intelligence apparatus to target an opposition presidential campaign. Adams is now president of an election integrity group called the Public Interest Legal Foundation. Representative Jackie Speer uh, talked uh, about handcuffs and jail for Barr on MSNBC, but got a skeptical response from the liberal host, Chris Matthews. Subpoenas are going to fly now, and when they are um, not complied with, we have what's called inherent contempt proceedings, which means we send the sergeant-at-arms out to handcuff the individual who is declining to testify. Matthews asks, who are you going to handcuff? Speer replied, um, I'm going to start with Mr. Barr and bring him in. Once there are specific subpoenas and he does not comply with them, the California Democrat later added, he can be brought before the House, he can be tried, he can either be held there to testify or he can be punished. And there is actually a jail in the Capitol, which has been used in as recently as 1930. And although that's going back almost a century, Cohen and Speer are legally correct about the authority of Congress. In the 1821 case of Anderson versus Dunn, the Supreme Court held that Congress has the right to enforce contempt citations if the executive branch will not. Otherwise, the high court ruled uh, the legislative branch would be exposed to every indignity and interpretation of uh, rudeness, caprice, and even conspiracy may uh, mediate against it. Well, in 1927, the Senate sent the sergeant at arms to Ohio to arrest and detain former attorney 
uh, General Harry Doherty's brother, Mally Doherty, in a probe that stemmed from the Teapot Dome scandal. Again, in 1927, the Supreme Court upheld the action on the part of Congress. However, Congress no longer has its own jail. Capitol Police, however, maintain a holding cell. Congress held administration officials in contempt of Congress in several other cases, but none resulted in incarceration. After IRS official Lois Lerner refused to cooperate with a House investigation of the agency's alleged targeting of Tea Party groups in 2013, The House voted to hold her in contempt of Congress. The Obama administration's Justice Department declined to prosecute. When President George W. Bush, a Republican, was in office, the Democrat-controlled House voted in 2007 to hold White House Chief of Staff Josh Bolton and White House Counsel Harriet Myers in contempt of Congress for not providing information on the president's firing of U.S. attorneys. During Republican Ronald Reagan's presidency, the Democrat-controlled House voted to hold Ann Gorsuch, uh, administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency, in contempt for failing to provide information about a hazardous waste cleanup site. Gorsuch was the first cabinet-level administration official to face contempt citation, according to the New York Times. Reagan's EPA chief is the mother of Neil Gorsuch, now the justice of the Supreme Court. So putting it in a bit of uh, historic context, uh, what's likely to happen? Mm, I guess very little, but uh, there you have what has happened before. Meanwhile, there's some things you should probably know about the prosecutor who's investigating spying on the Trump campaign, John Durham, uh, known for prosecuting FBI agents connected to infamous mobster James Whitey Bulger is now a fourth attorney general's pick to lead a special investigation into suspected government misconduct. Well, the Justice Department confirmed to media outlets that Attorney General William Barr named Durham, now U.S. attorney for the District of Connecticut, to look into why and how department and FBI officials began investigating associates of President Trump before the 2016 election. Now, Durham's resume includes investigating the mafia and crooked politicians. Attorney General's uh, attorneys general from Bill Clinton George W. Bush and Barack Obama administrations all previously appointed Durham to lead special investigations. He has an impeccable reputation and is considered to be apolitical. Well, once he's finished with this, I'm guessing he'll be tarred and feathered, depending on the outlook, and that reputation may be sullied. But Barr reportedly selected him to head the probe weeks ago as the FBI came under intense uh, scrutiny for spying on one Trump campaign advisor and sending a confidential informant to talk to another. Well, in the aftermath of special counsel Mueller's report clearing the Trump campaign of conspiracy with Russia to influence the election, many Republicans Uh, They called for an investigation into how the probe of uh, the president and his team started. Two known incidents loom large. The FBI obtained a warrant under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act to put Trump campaign aide Carter Page under surveillance. The FBI also sent a confidential informant to talk to George Papadopoulos, another Trump campaign aide, in a bar. The woman told Papadopoulos that her name was, well, it doesn't matter, and he later described her as flirtatious. She began asking questions about the campaign. Well, here's some things, and we'll get to that after the uh, top of the uh, the break, but uh, here are some things that you need to know about the prosecutor that was picked by Barr to uh, undertake this assignment. So we'll get to that in just a few moments. Again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, and yeah, we will be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 35 minutes after 5 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show, talking about some things you may want to know about the prosecutor who is investigating spying on the Trump campaign. Uh, Mr. Durham is 68 years old. He started his career in Connecticut, apparently he's still there, state prosecutor who worked in 
the uh, late 70s through uh, early 80s. Um, uh, Trump's first attorney general, Jeff Sessions, appointed Durham as acting U.S. attorney for Connecticut in October of 2017. And Trump nominated him for the post uh, the next month. He took office in February of 2018. He's also um, known, as I mentioned before, for busting mafia FBI connections. In 1999, then Attorney General Janet Reno appointed him to investigate corruption in federal law enforcement in Boston. As part of the investigation, he produced documents showing four men had been framed by FBI agents and convicted of murder in the 60s. Two died in prison. Two others won a $100 million civil judgment against the Justice Department. Um, He's been involved in special probes of the CIA and terror detainees as well. In 2008, then Attorney General Michael Mukasey, he appointed Durham as a special prosecutor to conduct what turned into a three-year probe of the destruction of CIA interrogation tapes. He didn't recommend any prosecutions in that case. He is a devoted Catholic. He's a Red Sox fan. Despite handling high-profile cases, he typically keeps a pretty low profile. The New Republic, which is a liberal magazine, wrote of him in 2011 that he earned a nonpartisan, camera-shy, white knight reputation. Uh, in terms of public uh, corruption, Durham led some of the biggest public corruption cases in Connecticut. Among them was the case of the Connecticut governor, John Rowland, a Republican who resigned in 20, uh, 2014 uh, after federal prosecutors found him illegally taking gifts from state contractors. Rowland pled guilty, was sentenced to a year in prison for offenses committed as governor. Well, this uh, Durham was overseeing that case. He also led an investigation of Bridgeport Mayor Joe Gannam, a Democrat who was convicted of racketeering and bribery charges in 2003. Gannam spent six years in prison. He was lauded by Democrats, uh, recently excoriated Barr for um, uh, even using the word spy to talk about actions by the Obama administration's FBI and Justice Department against the Trump campaign before the presidential election in 2016. However, Democrats could have a difficult time attacking Durham. Confirmed as U.S. attorney in February of 2018 by a voice vote in the Senate, he had gained praise from Democrats when Trump nominated him. Among those admirers were two Trump's uh, two of Trump's biggest critics, Connecticut's two Democratic senators, Richard Blumenthal and Chris Murphy. The two men had recommended Durham to serve as U.S. attorney. So this is the guy who's going to be looking into this. By all accounts, he is even handed and uh, and reliable. However, uh, you might recall that that was also said of Mueller before the probe and the disappointing outcome for opponents of the president. So maintaining one's reputation following one of these kinds of investigations may be more difficult than Mr. Durham uh, uh, is expecting. So we'll see what uh, what is made of it. Well, a Trump administration official criticized legislation supported by House Democrats that would gut a landmark 93 religious freedom law while adding sexual orientation and gender identity protections to federal civil rights law, I'm referring, of course, to the Equality Act. The White House has not yet uh, issued a formal veto threat or a statement of administration policy about the Equality Act, which House Democrats are expected to pass this week. Again, in the House, the Trump administration absolutely opposes discrimination of any kind and supports the equal treatment of all. However, this bill in its current form is filled with poison pills that threaten to undermine parental and conscience rights, an administration official said in a statement issued to reporters late Monday. Well, under President uh, Donald Trump, as uh, under previous presidents, the White House routinely issues a statement of administration policy from the Office of Management and Budget regarding legislation, stating whether the president's advisors would suggest the president sign or veto and why. 
Uh, it is a good first step that the White House has indicated uh, to the press their opposition to this bill. Mike Howell, who's senior advisor for executive branch relations at the Heritage Foundation, speaking to the Daily Signal. Conservatives are hopeful that the White House will take the lead by firmly issuing a statement of administration policy articulating their strong objections to this discriminatory bill. That has not yet happened. So the White House has criticized the Equality Act, but has uh, stopped short of a veto threat. So that's something that's being uh, watched, not to mention the fact that it's uh, very unlikely that it would pass muster in the Senate. But one never knows, um, does one. Well, the First Amendment to the United States Constitution begins, Congress shall make no laws respecting the establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Well, fast forward almost 250 years and religious freedom is one of the most pressing issues in American culture today. We'll take a look at some of the um, concerns surrounding this debate. First of all, what is religious freedom? Well, it's more than the freedom of worship or the freedom to worship at a synagogue, a church, a mosque. It means people should have to go, um, shouldn't rather have to go against their core values and beliefs in order to conform to culture or government. Religious freedom protects people's right to live, speak, and act according to their beliefs, peacefully and publicly. It protects their ability to be themselves at work, in class, and at social activities. Well, it sounds good, but does such freedom allow people to do whatever they want under the cover of religion? Well, the answer is no. The Supreme Court has said that the federal government can limit religious freedom, but only when it has a compelling interest to do so in order to protect the common good and limit people's ability to harm others. Well, here's how that applies to the most common allegations in religious freedom uh, cases today. Charges of discrimination. Should florists, photographers, bakers be forced to provide their services for same-sex weddings and celebrations that violate their religious beliefs? Well, let's flip the question. Should a lesbian graphic designer or printer be forced to create a flyer for a religious group's rally opposing same-sex marriage? In both questions... Uh, or both causes, the answer should be no. There are plenty of other bakers to provide cakes for same-sex weddings, and there are other graphic artists so, uh, religious groups uh, can hire. Additionally, in neither example is a person or group being denied a service because of who they are. It's because of the specific service they are requesting. In these cases, there's not a compelling interest for the government to interfere. That's a very different uh, thing from Jim Crow laws, for example, that mandated segregation based on racial supremacy. These laws prevented all individuals and businesses, regardless of their personal beliefs, from opening their doors and providing their services to African-Americans. These laws enforced widespread discrimination and denied African-Americans basic necessities. The government absolutely had a compelling interest to interfere. And that's why the answer to this next question is important. Does religious freedom mean religious people get special rights? Well, no. Religious freedom prevents the cultural majority from using the power of the state to impose their beliefs on others. This protects everyone, religious and non-religious alike, from the government becoming so powerful that it can tell people what to think and how to act. Conscience has been considered the individual's most sacred right. A government that intrudes on conscience will not hesitate to intrude on our other freedoms. Additionally, forcing individuals and faith-based organizations to choose between living out their religious beliefs or serving their neighbors actually harms our communities. Did you know that an estimated 350,000 religious congregations operate schools, pregnancy resource centers, soup kitchens, drug addiction programs, homeless shelters, and adoption agencies? Well, these efforts serve 70 million Americans every year, and the value of their services are estimated at over $1 trillion annually. 
Ultimately, everyone benefits from religious freedom. It covers all people equally, Christians, Jews, Muslims, agnostics, and atheists. Religious freedom preserves America's diversity, where people of different faiths, worldviews, and beliefs can peacefully live together without fear of punishment from the government. Efforts to repress religious freedom are not just an attack on individual liberty and human dignity, but on the very foundation that has made America strong. The Equality Act would do just that, not make America strong, but fracture America and its basic freedoms. Well, the Texas State Senate passed a bill out of the Senate Affairs Committee. That's the name of it, Senate Affairs Committee on Monday, that has opponents clucking over chicken sandwiches and religious freedom. Extraordinary measures were taken, but a companion bill to one that died in the Texas House last week was introduced and advanced to the full Senate. Again, we're talking Texas. The bill, Senate Bill 1978, is on the Senate's um, intent calendar for, well, this week. The legislation is all about preserving religious freedom and tasty Chick-fil-A sandwiches. Articles have been written here and other places for Months about troubles the fast food franchise is encountering over attempts to eliminate contracts with colleges, bans at airports, and investigations have been opened, so writes the uh, Texas newspaper. The battles against Chick-fil-A are led by activists opposed to the franchise's founder support of Christian charities, claiming that faith-based organizations are discriminatory to the LGBTQ community. Well, last week, Representative Matt Krause introduced House Bill 3172, again in Texas, which gay rights groups described as the most extreme anti-LGBT legislation filed this year. The bill was killed by a point of order, a parliamentary move from Representative Julie Johnson, a member of the House uh, LGBTQ caucus. Senate Bill 1978 was filed by Senator Brian Hughes. First, they offered a a point of order arguing to amend the bill improperly, uh, expanding its scope. That was shot down. Then another lawmaker said an analysis of the bill's effects was accurate. That point of order was valid, parliamentarians said. Well, as the bill died, a handful of lawmakers cheered its demise. Somewhere on the House floor, someone played the record of taps. Well, now there's a new bill, a bill filed to ensure religious beliefs are protected from discrimination. It's about the First Amendment and freedom of speech, freedom of religion, Those uniquely American rights, Hughes says, says he laid out his bill before a nearly empty committee room. His bill would prevent the government from penalizing an individual or business for actions based on religious belief or moral conviction. Texas Freedom Network, which is a left-leaning nonprofit uh, that works to counter actions from Christian conservatives, is none too pleased. And the back and forth over Chick-fil-A continues in Texas. Whether or not uh, you can simply eliminate them from a college campus or an airport for that matter because of the founders traditional christian beliefs Hmm. 46 minutes after five o'clock you're listening to the georgine rice show we'll take a break and we'll be back to wrap things up you're listening to the georgine rice show podcast is aired on 93.9 kpdq we're back you're listening to the final segment of the georgine rice show and can i just tell you that clark Clark is trying to distract me, and it's been very challenging to maintain my professional facade uh, against the onslaught of uh, Clark's efforts. Uh, Nonetheless, taking a look at what's coming up the remainder of this week, looking forward to a conversation with Kevin Palau. I know what you're thinking. I thought Kevin Palau was going to be on yesterday's program. Well, we made an error, and at the last minute we discovered our error. We had him uh, scheduled for Tuesday, at least on our calendar, but we had actually booked the interview with Kevin Palau for tomorrow. So we're looking forward to a conversation uh, with Kevin Palau. We're going to talk about an upcoming event, Show and Tell, 
that is uh, coming up uh, at the end of this month. We're going to talk about uh, the Louise Palau, the movie, and the book that is uh, going to be released in June. By the way, you can pre-order. We'll give you some details on that. We're also going to talk about how Louise Palau is doing. It was, um, what, 17 months ago or somewhere around that that he was uh, given the diagnosis of stage 4 lung cancer. Uh, but he has continued to do ministry and to uh, to work, to travel and so on. We're going to talk to Kevin Palau about how his dad's doing. So I'm really looking forward to getting that update. I recall him being at Mission Connection back in January. And when he first came to uh, the church, um, he was surrounded by folks who are, you know, go with him when he travels. And it wasn't at all clear that he was going to be able to speak at all. And arrangement, uh, arrangements were being made for his st- son to speak in his place. Uh, we were very concerned if he had enough um, capacity uh, to speak for as long as he was scheduled and as forcefully as we know Luis Palau to speak. Uh, and it was so interesting to me to see the evangelist take to the podium. He stood behind the mic. And when he began to speak, something happened, which I, I think uh, for many evangelists is the case. He, uh, his strength was restored. I'm sure it was still a challenge for him. But there was something about speaking about the gospel um, that gave him the energy that he needed to speak for about an hour. And it was uh, it was magnificent. So we're looking forward to getting an update that was clear back in January. And of course, we're now in mid-May. So Kevin Palau will join us tomorrow. We're also going to talk with Sean McDowell. He's the co-author of So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. This is designed for people who care about, minister to, and are engaged with young people, how to prepare them for the life ahead as a Christian in the challenging world that God has placed them. I'm always comforted by the scripture that says that God is faithful to all generations. It's not as if he's wringing his hands saying, man, the 21st century has really got me stumped. I'm not sure how these folks are going to survive. He has made that promise to this and every generation. And so Sean McDowell um, and his co-author have written a book to help us to um, not only encourage, inspire, but also equip young people so that they can uh, face the challenging world that they are going to uh, inherit from those of us who have been around much longer. And then on Friday, we're going to look forward to taking a look at the lighter side of the news. Well, Canadian movie distributors have de facto censored the movie Unplanned from screening in theaters there saying the movie's um, producers, it's just unsuitable for Canada. We have been effectively blocked from distributing the film in Canada. That's what the producer, Lisa Wheeler, at an Ottawa news conference said uh, earlier this month. Unplanned is based on the Abby Johnson memoir by the same name, the dramatic true story of of a Planned Parenthood director. What we're seeing is that the film industry in Canada mirrors the film industry here in the United States in terms of being more politically progressive, left-leaning, and pro-abortion than the population at large. That's a quote from Chuck um, Konzelman, the film's writer, producer, director, in an email interview. So our project is essentially anathema to them, and they see excluding us from Canada as positive, good, effectively enacting de facto censorship without Right of appeal. Well, the movie has exceeded all expectations at the box office in the U.S., earning about $18 million in its uh, U.S. run. Well, the two largest distributors in Canada cited content as the issue, no lack of consumer demand. Um, And this follows on the heels of Universal's rejection, um, every Canadian distributor we approached, and whose participation is required by law in order to exhibit a film theatrically throughout much of Canada. 
In fact, we can't even get a rating by any of the provincial film boards since one of the mandatory items on the application for each province is for us to list our distributor. I would like to say I'm surprised, but not uh, not at all, Abby Johnson told the news conference the day before the nation's um, March for Life. I have to wonder what uh, what they're afraid of. Well, it's quite clear to me what they're afraid of. The truth will out. Johnson said she left Planned Parenthood in October of 2009 for two reasons. The first was that she was told we needed to double our abortion quota, the number of abortions we had to sell. She said, noting that uh, policy went against the mantra around abortion, that it should be safe, legal and rare. But the coup de grace for Johnson in a gripping scene portrayed in the film Unplanned, which Canadians will not have the opportunity to see in their native land, was viewing an ultrasound guided abortion of a 13 week pre-born child. Seeing that child fight and struggle for his life against the abortion instrument made her realize there was life in the womb, humanity in the womb. As a proud feminist, Johnson said she realized what I had seen in the womb was a grave injustice. I now go around the world speaking about against abortion and the abortion industry. She's the co-founder and director of And Then There Were None. It's an organization that's dedicated to helping abortion workers get out of their jobs. She's not the only one who has. Her organization has helped about 500 abortion workers leave the industry. Since the movie, Unplanned, played in 2,000 screens in the U.S., even more abortion workers are contacting her. Johnson said she's deeply troubled by the lack of legal protection for the unborn in Canada. I'm also deeply concerned that many people here have not been able to speak publicly because they are concerned about punishment. That is not democracy. That is oppression. And that is certainly a direction that many would like to see us head in this country. Johnson said she knows of Canadian women who have come to the United States for late term abortions paid for by Canadian tax dollars. The fact that those women have to leave Canada for the procedure is a sign Canadians are uneasy about the issue and that is far from settled. She pointed out that Canada abolished slavery in 1834. What would have happened if people in Canada had convinced themselves that they uh, that not going um, could to concern themselves with slavery because the issue is settled? It should concern all of us, Johnson said. We should never look at any form of injustice and call it settled. Well, Wheeler said there are two ways Canadians can see unplanned. They can rent buses and drive to the United States, which is feasible in some parts of Canada along the border, but not so many others. Or independent groups and parishes can obtain a license to screen the movie. We're not defeated by this, Wheeler said. Canadians want unplanned there. Well, neither the Canadian uh, big chains have any plans to exhibit unplanned. The film presently does not have a distributor in Canada to market and undertake the necessary work, including, for example, securing the applicable provincial censor certifications to release the film across the country. Jack Gardner, vice president of marketing, sales and content programming for Landmark Cinemas, says at one point the film was to be distributed by in Canada, rather by level films. And since that uh, time, the uh, producers have unsuccessfully secured a partner to distribute the film in Canada. Well, the producers have inquired as to Landmark's interest in the film. A spokesperson for Cineplex said no distributor had approached them about exhibiting the film either. Well, given the censorship in place, individual sponsorship is the only way in which we are able to show in Canada. We'll be granting licenses for individual showings at a time and place of the sponsor's choosing, which can be a theater if desired or a parish hall or any other venue. The film will ultimately be seen. 
Well, the movie Gosnell, um, uh, the trial of America's biggest serial killer, abortion doctor Kermit Gosnell, who was convicted of murder of several babies after they were born alive in his clinic, also has faced difficulties getting a distributor there. So Canadians, according to those who would like to censor the content of these films, can be blissfully ignorant of what actually happens or what to do about it. Well, once again, tomorrow on the program, we're going to hear from our good friend, Kevin Palau. We'll also hear from Sean McDowell, co-author of So the Next Generation Will Know, Preparing Young Christians for a Challenging World. I want to thank James Blinn for producing today's program. Chris, uh, that's not Chris Williams, Clark Hilton for uh, engineering today's program. And thank you for uh, making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.